We are live in the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark cast iron building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, The Eighth Wonder of the World, the publisher, University of Nebraska Press, the authors Robert Trumpor and Kenneth Womack. Please join me as we welcome Robert Trumpor and Kenneth Womack to the clubhouse. Thank you. Thank you very much. And just briefly, before we get going, uh, just very brief bios on, on both of these gents. Robert Trumpor, an associate professor of communications at Penn State University, Altoona, is the author of The New Cathedrals, Politics and Media in the History of Stadium Construction. Kenneth Womack, Dean of the Wayne D. McMurray School of Humanities and Social Sciences and a professor of English at Monmouth University, is the author of several books, including Long and Winding Roads, The Evolving Artistry of the Beatles. Uh, so I, just to get us going, and whoever wants to, to start, how did this particular book project come about? Well, one thing that's amazing is Ken's grandfather was the structural engineer of the Astrodome. So when I was writing the new cathedrals, Ken and I would talk quite a bit about ballparks and stadiums and stadium design. And we always talked about doing a book about the Astrodome. And uh, we just decided it's time to do it. And, and Ken can right. take it away. Yeah, and we, uh, Bob and I have worked together for a very, very long time and enjoy working together. In fact, I hired Bob, <laughs> which was a great move for the university. And. Um, we got to the point where uh, we realized, with this idea in mind that had been germinating for a long time, this was 2012 or so, and we were realizing that you know the dome was under fire. Uh, there were there was a lot of talk of tearing it down, and uh, if we were going to do something, we ought to get started. And of course, also out there was the 50th anniversary of the Astrodome, which turned 50 in April uh, 2015. That was our original plan yeah. for publication. We didn't even come close. Uh, and I think that has a lot to do with that's uh, okay. the fact that we wanted to do the book right and really Yeah, we really wanted to nail it down. I, I will say that the thing that really got us focusing on the Astrodome is in so many ways it changed the face of spectatorship and the way you know stadiums were built in the future. And, and that sort of emphasis on luxury that Roy Hoffheinz tried to deliver you know, is fundamentally something that you see now, and you know, it may be in a different form than what, what Roy Hoffheinz envisioned, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's something that you see all the time in these, you know, these clubs and, you know, the uh, special dining places and this, you know, the mall parks, you know, that, you know, rather than ballparks and, and all those sorts of things in many ways started with the Astrodome. And we looked at, as an example, the notion of the skybox. And it's not that the Astrodome was the first place to have a skybox, but it was the first place to have multiple skyboxes that were luxuriously appointed and, and that were sort of set up to create revenue and, and unique revenue streams. So, so that in and of itself was revolutionary. You remember we, we, you know, the, we quoted some of the architects who said we just we didn't even think of that, and that was Hoffheinz's idea, and you know we were just going to put ductwork and other things there, and you know when he came up with the idea, we we didn't know if it would work or not, but you know the proof was in the pudding, it was enormously popular. 
if you could just, uh, since you mentioned his name, um, one of the things I really enjoyed about this book is I, I used to work in politics. Obviously, I love baseball, so there's this great intersection of the two in this book. And, and Roy Hofheinz, if you, who you just mentioned, if you could just let us know, <laughs> tell us who he is and a little about this fascinating uh, gentleman. Yeah, Roy was unbelievable. I mean, when you think about Roy Hofheinz, he graduated from high school, I think it was a month or two after his 16th birthday. He was taking the bar exam before he was 20, and he passed it. Uh, <laughs> you know, he was, he was elected to the, to, you know, he was elected to the Houston, Houston State Legislature at age 22. I mean, you think about it, this guy was on the fast track, and he was politically connected one of his closest associates, and he actually met him at the, I think it was the 1928 Democratic uh, National Convention, which was in Houston. Uh, you know, he, he, he met and befriended Lyndon Johnson. Not a bad person, if you know politics, to actually have as a good friend and a confidant. And in fact, they were such close friends that when JFK was shot, they were back and forth on the phone several times that day. So, you know, he was quite a powerful individual. And he probably, you know, if he really wanted to, could have probably run for governor of Texas, but he put all his energies into the Astrodome. But, you know, just an amazing guy who had a vision that Houston could use an indoor stadium. He wanted to have sort of a Taj Mahal that was climate controlled, and he felt this could be a showplace for, for Houston that really set it off. Uh, and, you know, he, he one of the people that he met and he worked very closely with was, was, was Kenneth Zimmerman, who did the engineering and designing. And Hoffheinz was kind of unique in that, you know, he would not let anyone stop his vision. So as an example, um, when, you know, when he was trying to get people to buy into the dome, uh, when one of the architects who he had on board balked a little bit, he said, if you're not on board, I'm going with Buckminster Fuller. <laughs> and, you know, so, you know, he was pretty headstrong about once he decided what he wanted to do, he was doing it. And his initial plan was to, was to have a shopping mall, which is ironic because now these ballparks are mall parks. <laughs> you know, so, so that's what he did. But, um, you know, the shopping mall fell through because what happened is the person he was competing against for the shopping mall basically gave gave la free land to Foley's to, to lock in an anchor. So what wound up happening is he said, I don't think Houston can support two large scale malls, so I'm out. And then he flipped his energies to an indoor stadium. And that's kind of how it worked. Was he much of a baseball fan? You know what? He, he liked baseball, but he wasn't <laughs> a baseball fanatic. He, he, he probably steamed up, and I, I think like Paul Richards, you know, when, when he was GM of the Astros, I just remember, you know, Hoffheinz fired him. And one of the things that, that um, Hoffheinz looked at entertainment in general, and he wanted to entertain people. Uh, and when you say he, he saw baseball as uh, a mobilizing force. Yeah. And what excited him about the project, and far more than the mall, of course, as Bob has noted, was that he saw it as a mobilizing force to take Houston from this cow town, this oil town, rather, the oil patch, right? Fort Worth was the cow town. To take this, this 
No, this oil patch town, which is made up of yeah. you know people from all facets of the industry, um, coming together uh, willy nilly and to yeah. try to take it to a kind of international place. Yeah. And of course, that's what that's what projects like the Astrodome and of course the Johnson Space Center, NASA, that's yeah. what they achieved. They took yeah. it from this, the backwaters of Texas into an international city. Yeah. And, he, and he really liked the mobility. And the fact that Houston did not have a professional baseball team and was on, was yeah. on the frontier of the NFL at best, um, you know, that excited him. He yeah. liked to win. Yeah, he, he was very competitive. But, you know, I was talking about Paul Richards, and, you know, when he was GM, after he got fired, you know, a guy tried to console him. I think it was Kirksey, George Kirksey tried to console him and said, uh, I think sometimes Roy Hoffmeister is his own worst enemy. And Richard said, not while I'm alive. Was Hoffmeister instrumental in getting the National League to expand? It actually was more George Kirksey and Craig Cullinan. Craig Cullinan was heir to the Texaco fortune, and George Kirksey was a UPI sports writer who had actually covered New York and had covered, uh, you know, major sports in a variety of, of things. I mean, he covered World Series, covered Rose Bowls, covered top-tier boxing matches. Uh, you know, in, in all the major sports, he was a really well-known sports writer. But he was from the, the Houston area and really wanted to get Houston a team. He was the most persistent guy. When he meshed with Cullinan, who had the Texaco name, that actually really got things rolling. And Hoffmeister came on a little bit after they were pushing to make things work. And, and you know, Kirksey tried to, he tried to buy the St. Louis Cardinals and move them. He tried to buy, I mean, he, he really. He was an operative. Yeah, he I really mean, was. Bob and I spent a lot of time studying <laughs> the archives at the University of Houston, and the Kirksey archives are fascinating. They really because are. You, you learn that he, and you know, imagine how business was done in 1962, right? You know, you have a guy like George Kirksey, whom nobody really knows yeah. once he leaves a certain zip code, and he would go around the country making deals, wielding power, uh, spending Hoffines' money, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and he was really, what we, we both looked at each other and said, wow, this guy is a real operative here. He's <laughs> and he liked <laughs> clandestine stuff, and he, yeah, he whispered to people, yeah. He was sort of G. Gordon Liddy without the annex, <laughs> in a way. Well, and, you know, and, and the crazy. <laughs> yeah, but but you know the fact that he had what what Cullen, what Craig Cullinan added, you know the guy who's the Texaco heir, is he brought money to the table and and so so Kirksey would at four o'clock, you know, roll into his office and they would do just baseball business for the last hour of the day and then you know that there were times where they would have the staff you know the uh, the, the secretarial staff stay overtime to work on this baseball stuff, but. Cullinan would fund all these trips, so you had a lot of Texaco money funding getting the Astros, you know, eventually. The Colt 45s initially, the Astros later. The, uh, well, actually, what, just getting back to something you had said before, Ken, about trying uh, uh, how we wanted to make Houston this international or, or, or world-class city. Or, or yeah, that's say. right. Uh, there's a photo in here which is priceless. J it, it's worth it just for this one photo. I loved it. Of the groundbreaking ceremony. Right. <laughs> of trying to show Houston in a different light with this groundbreaking ceremony. If you could just 
Yeah, yeah. So they, it's the groundbreaking, and and actually Bob and I were reminiscing over that this afternoon <laughs> because it was the hardest photo to get, but we knew we had to have that photo. Everything else had been lined up very quickly, and of course we took a number of photos ourselves when we were in the uh, the Astrodome just a few years ago, um, the condemned Astrodome just a few years ago. Uh, but the, but that photo is very important. It's the groundbreaking, and. Uh, and I do remember my, my grandfather, Ken Zimmerman, would talk about it. You know, they, they thought it was nutty. Uh, these guys actually had pistols, and they fired them into the ground, you know, uh, I guess to show a little bit of Texas. Um, so you're, I, I see where you're going, and, and you're absolutely right. There was this ridiculous irony, right? They're trying to step outside of, of a certain kind of um, yeah. uh, cultural mindset we might have about Texas and about... Texas, particularly at that time, or maybe Texas now, right? Um, and and uh, and instead of you know extending themselves beyond it, they, they mimicked it. They went right in. Yeah, they doubled down. And, and, and with no, with handguns, they named the team after a gun, the Colt right. forty five. So so they kind of exacerbated the stereotypes that people had versus doing what Hoffheinz wanted to do. Hoffheinz actually initially wanted to call them either the stars or the Astros. Right. And it, it could have been the stars or it could have been the Astros. But, you know, he wanted something that sounded more more new tech, more cutting edge. And he didn't well, to like his credit, the Colt he was seeing the marketing in it. Yeah. Right. I mean he yeah. was what what the famous book about Hawthines is called what, The Grand Huckster. Yeah. You know, and he is. He's a huckster con man, but he was a very intentional one. You know, he decided when he was going to be a millionaire, when he was going to, yeah. you know, to do this next milestone and that great accomplishment and then that feat, and, you know, things began to fall in line. Uh, and as far as in the Astrodome, so he, they want to make this palace. <laughs> and uh, as you mentioned, there's, uh, it's, it's really groundbreaking. There's the, the padded seats, the restaurants, uh, the luxury boxes, the, the video scoreboard. Yeah. Uh, but there's also a couple of flaws in there. The, so if you could just speak a little about, about that, the, the glare that's coming through oh, the roof geez, yeah. and then the grass. Sure, yeah, they thought that they could, and, and Ken actually knows a bit more about this since he grew up with the engineering, but they, they honestly thought that you know, you, they'd be able to you know, build the Astrodome and with those lucite panels, you'd be able to see the fly ball, and everything would work sure, out fine. Sure, and they, they what? They developed a special strain of grass at Texas A and M. Yeah, this, this was going to be the yeah. answer, and of course, <laughs> it was a disaster. You know, uh, either the grass was was dead, um, or they would overwater it, and they would create these you know these mud slicks. This, it was it was uh, just terrible yeah. what had happened, and and Hoffines was furious. Yeah, in fact. Um, <laughs> And uh, they tried painting over the skylights. That, that's when the grass died, of course. Yeah. Um, did they paint the grass too? Uh, well, they painted. That the, story's out there that, that they it, did paint. They the did grass. paint the grass green just because it was dead brown grass. So they, <laughs> they painted it green. And remember, what Hoffines cared about was it's got to look good on TV. <laughs> he wants that grass to look good on TV, or at least from his apartment, yeah. you know, in right field. Right. Um, <laughs> I'll never forget that apartment. I thought that's where you were going a moment ago. No, no, um, go there. Well, no, I. I I just, I'll never forget when I was about six years old, the first time we went there, um, we had grown up first in Houston, went to New Orleans, and we came back. And my first Astros game, when I'm about seven or eight, um, my dad starts pointing, you know, up to right field. He says, now that's, that's where Roy Hoffine's apartment is. 
And I thought, why would anybody have, <laughs> who lives in a ballpark, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but of course it was worse than that, right? He had the bar and the- Yeah, he had what, a bowling, bowling alley, alley, he had a putting green, he yeah, had a I mean, barber shop, he, I mean, he put all these luxurious appointments. Yeah, he did. You're right. But I mean, what was funny is I think it was Bob Hope who said, you know, if they put in a nursery and a cemetery, you'd never have to leave the place. <laughs> and now, how did so now that the grass is dead, the grass is painted, whatever's happening with the grass, obviously they need to play on a field. Yeah. So how do they now get to what becomes known as AstroTurf? Well, they, they, you know, they, they move very quickly. AstroTurf was taking hold in other parts of the country. Uh, Remember and, Tal Smith, going sure. to Providence. Yeah, I mean, they, they did what they always did. Uh, they just sent Tal instead of George Kirksey, and yeah. he went out, he did the work, and you know, yeah. in short order, they, they, yeah. they installed it. Of course, that's when the Astrodome went from being this air-conditioned palace to suddenly it took a turn that a lot of baseball purists still talk about right and, and hate uh, yeah and hate right <laughs> and they hate it even it's even though it's not operational <laughs> yeah uh no it, it and in fact houston uh being a proud city uh was always very self-conscious about the ways people would talk about the dome yeah and about about the astroturf so uh, it was not a surprise when when the move yeah. came to to build what is now yeah. known as minute Maid park Mm -hmm. And to have a natural grass field, yeah. and, and to try to grab um, what a more traditional yeah. kind of baseball yep. in Houston culture. But, but Tal Smith went out to a high school that was using it, just you know, in Rhode Island, and and did <coughs> and basically met with some of the. It was Chemstrand. That's right. Which was a division of Monsanto, and they talked about it. They tried to figure out you know how to make it work. Now the first AstroTurf was was clearly inferior to what followed, but at the same time, it was a start, and, and they ended up putting that all in. And they moved quickly because they had to. Yeah. You know, they were, they were doing all of these quick fixes, you know, in off-seasons and yeah. all-star breaks. They were working on the roof, and, and yeah. you know, they were moving very quickly, and, and Hoffines was panicking. Yeah, yeah. You know, he would, he would direct this with a serious iron fist. Yep. I wanted to get your thoughts on something. Uh, I love baseball, everyone here loves baseball. Uh, to me, one of the saddest parts of what's happened to ballparks, or actually, I don't want to use the word ballparks, uh, what's happened to stadiums, yeah. uh, is that they become really stratified by social class. Yeah. And this seems to be where it all starts. In a, at least that's how I took it. Yeah. And I, I want to get your thoughts about that. Well, and, and Bob, Bob would have a lot to say about this, but. To his credit, Hoffine saw the Astrodome as a kind of democratizing place that had options available for however you wanted to spend your entertainment dollar, you know, when you came to see him. Uh, he, he called it the green policy. Yeah, the green, he, was, he was really quite egalitarian about, about the whole <laughs> business in a good way. Um, you know, he wanted to cater to the luxury customer, but at the same time, you know, he was uh, probably far more so than, than any owner today, right, uh, was far more concerned that any Houstonian could be able to go to the ballpark and, you yeah. know, I mean, I, I had a colleague back at Penn State who was bemoaning the fact that they went to a Yankees game and they spent 800 bucks for four, you know, and he said he did his math. He couldn't see how they could have gone any cheaper. You know, I, I think that, I think Roy would have found that to be really problematic, but it, 
and he would have gone back to the fact, to his credit, despite being this con man huckster, you know, he was very cognizant that the city, uh, the county rather, had paid for much of the stadium. Yeah, and, and honestly, stadiums, you know, someone who's researched the stadium issue, stadiums don't necessarily pay for themselves. So he looked at the skyboxes as a way to, you know, bring in revenue and offset taxpayer streams. Unlike <laughs> today, where essentially the owners grab all that revenue and say, taxpayers, if you don't give us more, we're going to leave. Yeah. You know, so. Well, in, in the Astrodome's case, one of the reasons it still exists, correct me if I'm wrong, Bob, is that the bond isn't paid off. Yeah, that's part of it. Yeah, part of the bond is not paid off because remember they renovated it, uh, you know, in the '80s. Yeah, yeah. What about the asbestos in the roof? You know what they they <laughs> it, no, it's it's weird, but the the asbestos in that building because the, the building codes back then they used asbestos pretty routinely, so there is asbestos in there. They have taken some of it out, but a good point is. And it's very odd, but the fact that there's asbestos there actually, in a weird way, might be part of what's preserving it because they've got to either encapsulate it or spend much more to pull it out. So, so they're in sort of a weird catch-22. Um, the first time I ever went to Houston had to be back in 1983. And I was going to business trip. You know, they have all these underground passages yeah. that right. are air-conditioned. You never have to walk outside. It's really scary yeah. walking around midtown New York. Did those underground passages exist when they built the Astrodome? So it was all part of the concept of being modern and air-conditioned. I'm not sure. Like I don't think they did. Uh, I think they were later than that. But I recall those passageways, right? And they flooded, of course, in some of the recent storms. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I grew up well, in the New York metro area, so yeah. Ken would know. My father than I worked downtown for Shell Oil, and yeah. so I remember when I found out about these, I thought, "My God, really? Yeah. <laughs> this is a state without basements, <laughs> but we have underground passages." Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's any relationality uh, with that. Did they play for a year in, in the old minor league park, or was the Astrodome all? No, they 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 yeah. built. You know, they they built. Colt Stadium. They built Colt Stadium. Which was it in was, the parking lot. It was a new stadium next to where the Astrodome was being built. And, and Hopfines wanted that on purpose so that when you came to the, the <laughs> ballpark, you could see the dome being built. But they could have played in the old... Buffalo, Houston Buffs. Where the Buffs played, yeah. yeah they, they could have played there. Hopfines was against that. He, he did not want to play there. And, and there was also some, some weirdness in that, you know, at the time they got the team, Marty Marion was, you know, owned, was one of the part owners of the AAA. Yeah, and they're, yeah, and essentially those guys, they were very fearful that they might make a pitch to get the team because, in essence, there was no guarantee that it, the Kirksey group that you know Hoffman's was aligned with would actually get control of the team, and you know. So there was there was sort of some weird blood between them that, that sort of muddied the waters to some extent. So so that was part of the dynamic as well. Well, Hoffines was really cognizant of optics too. Yeah. He would think about how things looked. I mean, but who wouldn't if this is a guy who has an apartment in right field, right? A multi-story <laughs> and a bowling alley and a carousel or whatever else was there. I'm, the circus room. That's yeah. right, the circus room. So he was he was very thoughtful about 
not thoughtful, conceited almost about optics. So he, he knew about the idea of the proximity of, of the Colt Stadium as the dome was being built. He would also uh, think um, very carefully about how to stage the building of the dome. So it wasn't just a construction site that nobody paid attention to. Pretty soon as these massive, you know, um, bridge works and, and iron works are coming up and the steel and et cetera, et cetera, you have the networks out there watching this thing happen. And so you know, he, he would stoke that. Yeah. He loved the attention and he loved the attention that the story was getting for the city. And was he uh, very instrumental in what, uh, taking the Astrodome from just baseball to everything else it became over time? Absolutely, yeah. Was he, he, he right, but it was a war. Yeah. He, he wanted it to be with, an all-purpose. Um, You're right. Uh, they, I, there were other folks who wanted to build a downtown facility that would host other events, and that essentially would have you know, hurt the Astrodome in a lot of ways. He wasn't going to let that happen. Yeah, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, Hoffheinz, he, he, put, he put all kinds of events in. He had, he had Billy Graham's Crusade for Christ. Remember, he had the, 19, the 1968 basketball game between the Houston Cougars and UCLA, John Wooden's UCLA team. And that was, that was really the first major national coast-to-coast -coast broadcast of, of you know, major a one and two ranked basketball team. And it essentially, in a lot of ways, paved the way for the NCAA uh, tournament. And, and that being so popular, he also, you remember he had uh, the Battle of the Sexes with Bobby Riggs and Billie Jean King. He had Elvis Presley, who actually admitted he was somewhat nervous about playing in the Astrodome <laughs> and was somewhat intimidated by the Astrodome, which is kind of funny when you think about Elvis. Well, and of course, there were lots of concerts associated with the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. And my first yeah. concert was at the Astrodome. It was Sonny and Cher. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, but I like that detail. <laughs> I think they played I Got You, yeah. Babe, twice. That's funny. Yeah. But, I mean, he even had weird things in there, like he tried mid auto racing. Oh, God. So he got these little dinky cars that you know one uh, a, a normal sized person could barely fit in. And AJ Foyt was one of the racers, you know, when, when he was sort of at the, at the peak of his popularity. And like he would tr he would try to get anything that he thought could sell. He truly was a huckster. And uh, you know, there were all kinds of odd events in the Astrodome, and he was he was glad to host them. In fact, that was one of the things that got in the way of him being, you know, more baseball-oriented, is he wanted, to, he wanted this to be a grand entertainment palace that was sort of the center of the entertainment world. And, and to some degree, that detracted from baseball. He looked at baseball as just one part of a bigger, broader entertainment landscape. But would that have been possible without the AstroTurf? I mean, would they have been able to host those events you know what? It had to have made it easier to have it made the turf. It, it did make it a There's lot no easier. There's no doubt about that. But so was, it, was that always a part of the plan, or did they, did they ultimately install basically a carpet? The they, they actually initially, I, I'm not sure, and but I think Hoffheinz, he didn't mind flipping the AstroTurf. No, he didn't he care really, at all, really. No, he really didn't. I mean, he. I think he was happy to do so. Well, it looked green on TV. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Again, that was... <laughs> but but I initially, I mean, they spent a lot of time with Texas A&M agricultural experts on on you know this this unique strain of grass that was supposed to 
you know, operate, was supposed to grow reasonably well under low light conditions. So I think initially they thought they could make that work. But even during the early years, they would do, they would do these nutty shows, like they had the boat show in the first year. Think about that. You, you, would, you would go into the Astrodome and you would walk onto the field and look at these boats. You know, so, so like that was an example of Roy Hoffheim. Well, they would host the offshore technology conference there. Yeah. Where all the oil companies would yeah. haul in all of this machinery. And that was for decades. You yeah. Know. Did you ever try to get the Super Bowl? I know they had it in Rice. Yeah, they, they did, but they, they actually, you know, since Rice had greater capacity and during Super Bowl time, the, you know, an outdoor thing probably wasn't going to be a problem in Houston because the average temperature is what, in about somewhere in the 50s. So it wasn't going to be a problem. They ended up not putting it in the Astrodome. Astrodome's capacity was a it was too small. It was 50, right, for football, yeah. was it right? Yeah. And of course, this will be the this next year will be the closest it's been to the Super Bowl. Yeah. Because yeah, it'll, it'll be, be next door. The next they building over. They capacity in the 80s to try to keep the oilers. Oh, that's they did. A, that's a really interesting story. Yeah, and, and we spent a lot of time working on the engineering because it really is a fabulous story, the way it was built. A lot of new uh, design aspects had to be developed just to build a thing. You know, this is 19, early 1960s. There is no structure like that with a, what, 230,000-pound roof that has to stay up about 13 stories high, you know, and when you get to 13 stories high, the wind conditions, there's a lot of shear. Um, so even keeping the roof on the thing was, was quite a challenge. And so they developed a number of, my grandfather did actually, developed two structures that he named. One was the knuckle column. And we learned all of this uh, from his protege, a fellow named Narendra Gassane, who worked with him at Walter P. Moore for many, many years. Um, and Narendra uh, actually handled the, he did the renovations in the 80s where they had to add different kinds of seat structures to accommodate. <laughs> and he did an amazing he job. He did an amazing job, actually. They, they created racks of seats that you could pull out and shift over and, you know, to accommodate the, uh, the whimsy yeah. of the Oilers. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then they leave anyway. Uh, but, but the knuckle column was the column at the top of the building that would hold the roof onto the structure. And every five degrees, you would have, it looked like a knuckle, right? But you think about how a knuckle will bend in. Right. So that's the movement it And has. that way it would adjust and to the calibrate wind. the movement. Yeah. But this part of the knuckle, if you can see here, the top part of the finger, it was a four-foot steel beam. So it would move inside the building. In fact, the building's moving right now. Uh, the roof is always moving, and then the knuckle column, this is going to sound like an old rhyme that we all learn, knuckle column connects to the star column. <laughs> uh, there's a star column on the side. If you see there, the, the star-looking shapes on the side of the dome, they look ornamental. And I remember my mother telling me as a kid, well, they put those there because it's the Lone Star State. And I thought, well, that's okay. Um, <laughs> but that's not why at all. It, the, the, the star column is actually the, um, the vertical. Yeah connector piece to connect the knuckle column to the ties underground about 15 stories below. So there, there's a nice sort of tandem engineering activity that's occurring, like I said, right now, yeah. uh, that maintains the building's integrity. And it's one of the reasons that the Astrodome survived hurricane force winds several times without any issues. And they, they were sure that one day the future world would have what? Uh, Concord-like planes shooting over all the time. <laughs> so it's designed to withstand two successive sonic booms. That third one, though, that'll take it down. But two, it can take two.
But <laughs> Let's play two. It is pretty funny how they, they actually did test it for sonic They did, booms, yeah. There was a lot they, of... They tested it for wind. They, they used the McDonnell Douglas Labs in St. Louis <laughs> to do that. So that was pretty amazing. But even for all that work, there was a lot of stress about the... Um, I can't remember the number. Was it 39 erection towers yeah. uh, that were inside <laughs> holding up the roof until the day when they they released the towers? Yeah. And uh, my father said that my grandfather told him the weekend before, you know, what was about to happen, this big thing, right? We're going to release the erection towers. And, of course, he knew it was going to hold because he's a mathematician. He's an engineer. He, you know, he had done the work. Uh, but he, he feigned uh, fear that, that the building would collapse. And so my dad said, well, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to stand in the middle because the networks are all around the building. <laughs> this is going to go. That's where I want to be. <laughs> well, it's, I don't remember the, the, the name of the picture on the Astros. Uh, it's in the book, one of, one of your stories, right, where he tells his wife and, and children not to come to the ballpark yeah. on the – for opening day, because he thinks the roof may collapse. <laughs> <laughs> so they don't come. And I guess they miss whatever happened. Yeah. And, and a word about um, uh, about the grass and and the conditions and the, the mud, you know, the, the mud problems and everything. That was not a surprise. Um, part of that was was I'm thinking Hawthorne's stubbornness, right? Yeah. We developed this grass. We're going to use this grass, right? This is going to work. We're going to show those purists. Whoever they are, they're probably those New York sports writers, right? <laughs> we're going to show them. Yeah. We're going to show those Yankees. Yeah. Uh, we're going to show them what this is all about. Um, so he was clinging to that. But the first minute that, that uh, you know, uh, turf management experts and baseball experts stepped in, they, they said, you've got a problem. You yeah. know, you're going to have a glare in the, at, in the outfield. People are going to drop balls. It's not going to work. Yeah. You know, and, and he barreled forward. So it was part of his hubris that – gave them such a short window when they had to go get the AstroTurf and as Bob said, you know, install it and make that happen in yeah. a jiff. Well, you, since you mentioned New York sports writers, <laughs> I, th I thought that was also fascinating, the reaction from the New York sports writers to this AstroDome, yeah. which uh, not all, there were a couple, I, I forget who it was in particular, one of the writers seemed rather negative, I, I think yeah. the New York Times writer. Yeah, uh, you're right. Yeah. Uh, but the others seemed extremely uh, gracious in, in sure. what they wrote, uh, which surprised me a little bit. About yeah, this, uh, it, it is pretty fascinating. And I, what's what's interesting is I think Hoffheinz really thought about New York as a global leader, and he he wanted to make sure that that Houston was looked at in the same same regard. So the first game first game in the Astrodome was actually an exhibition game against the New York Yankees, and you're talking about the Yankees. I mean, they were an older team. They were ready to start their decline, but they weren't a, a team that was clearly on the decline yet. So, you know, you had Mickey Mantle and you had, you know. He hits the first homer. Yeah. So, so you had a pretty. Which is saying something. Yeah. <laughs> and Mantle was from Oklahoma. So, yeah, I mean, you've got this situation where someone who's not that far from, from Texas, you know, hits the home run. And, you know, the. The Houston sports writers really were excited that they were playing the Yankees because they looked at New York as, you know, that's the place people look at as a leader. We want to be leaders too. So some of the folklore that I think many of us have experienced about the Dome's non-purist campiness, yeah, um, that doesn't start early on. You know, the tyranny of the new served the Astrodome really well for yeah. five or ten years. It was new. It was big. 
Yeah, it had air conditioning, you know. <laughs> um, I mean, people were excited by that. So it was, a, it was a news story that had legs for several years. Yeah. Um, it's really not till what, what the 70s and we get those rainbow, rainbow uniforms <laughs> yeah. that the Astros start to become kind of, and they weren't very good. Yeah, with only Astros, a, did you say yeah, the Astros? the and, and we made most of those up. I think you and I did. Yeah, <laughs> right. And they were, and you know, they were they were a joke, and they wore these uniforms that didn't look great on an out of shape baseball player, right? <laughs> skin tight. Yeah, skin tight. They were awful. No, these and, and the vertical stripes. So yeah. right. I mean, if they, you were if you were rusty, yeah, you don't even have one of the uniforms here. <laughs> we they, did. Yeah. People actually like those now. What? Hindsight, yeah. They like it. Yeah, they're just very loud. And of course, when you look at the first ast the first uniforms they had after they left the Astrodome, they were these kind of pure-looking red brick pinstripe things. Yeah. So they were clearly hearkening for a different feel. But it was in the '70s when the Astrodome started to come longer in the tooth. And let's face it, it seemed too small for football, too big for baseball. It wasn't comfy and cozy enough that its reputation started to lag pretty quickly. You know, and then there's that movement in the 80s. And you know, Bob and I were talking about this today too, it probably didn't help when uh, suddenly we all had cable and we could watch WGN and we could see our friends out in Wrigley Field, the most pure park, right? Uh, you know, which would tell you every day you'd have Skip and, uh, yeah, sorry, the, um, the wrong, wrong network. Harry and, uh, and, and Steve Stone tell you about how pure it is and, and you know what it was the, all about playing under the, the natural sun confines. the friendly confines right <laughs> so you know we started to develop a very different taste very quickly uh, in American sports spectatorship in the 80s yeah in terms of sight lines how would you compare the Astrodome to the new stadium oh the new stadium's much better I had a wonderful opportunity <laughs> that uh, occurred uh, only a few years before my grandfather died he was very proud of the Astrodome of course um, but he'd also worked on Minute Maid Park, then Enron mm -hmm. Field. Uh, <laughs> he'd worked on the park and he'd helped do some of the design because his company, Walter P. Moore, still works. They're very heavily involved in stadium construction. They do a lot of the retractable roof work uh, that you see today. And uh, he had not been able to see it, so I took him and he had his walker. And it was one of those disastrous moments if you've ever had your elderly grandparents where they drop you at the wrong entrance. So we had to walk all the way around that thing, and he wouldn't let any of the multitudinous people who went by on golf carts drive him around, which they gladly would have done because they didn't want, you know, the guy who designed the dome to die <laughs> in the new stadium. But uh, I, I found that almost everywhere I've sat there, you're right in the game. The dome was not like that. I mean, you could be in the outfield, and um, yeah. I remember some of those 1986 games we uh, – we were late in getting our tickets, and so we had the worst outfield seats you could get. It's like you're in another place. You can't even hear anything. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, well, you it's know, so far away. Well, I, I remember as a youngster going to Shea Stadium and later going to the Vet in Philly and later going to Three Rivers in Pittsburgh. And, and somewhat similar because you're talking about concrete donuts. Stadium in yeah. Oh, my God. Very, very cold, not into Yeah, actually, I remember and going the foul there. ground, right? I mean, the Astrodome minute it's nightmare. Yeah, but the foul ground is part of it too. So you could be in that, you could spend top dollar for that box seat on the front row, and you're not in the game. Hoffman's made the dugout smaller, right? Yeah, he did, and and that was by design. I mean, what he, what what his goal was, 
is everyone always says uh, we sat right behind the dugout. If you know, if oh. so, <laughs> in his mind, if he everybody if, has dugout seats, if, if, even if he outfield. makes the dugout ridiculously long and and you know three times longer than the dugouts in other ballparks, everyone can say they sat behind the dugout. You know, I mean, I remember going to Wrigley and sitting three rows behind the dugout. You know, at a Cubs game and saying, these seats are unbelievable. Well, if you were in an Astrodome seat behind the dugout, they might not be the greatest seats. Yeah, that's right. I'm just curious, uh, being that Houston is so far south, how did race play into the team? Did the Houston Bucks have an integrated team? And um, well, these teams were integrated. Players on the Astros, were they integrated? Did they have a lot of black players? Well, I mean, the Astros were, I, I really don't. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't. That know. wasn't the interesting part about race, though. There was quite Hot, a. Hot Feinz was interesting with race. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, um, he was spending top dollar to build this place, you know, and at a certain point they needed to get another bond. Am I remembering correctly? Yeah. And, and they needed it, another bond, and uh, part of the way he built up the political will uh, in 63, 64, they built it rather quickly, yeah. was to approach the African-American community. And he had their trust, because when he was mayor of Houston, he did a lot of things that helped the African-American community. So, so they liked him, and they, they were willing to support him. There, there's a story, I, I, like as an example, one of the things Hofheinz did, and I, I think the African-Americans in Houston remembered this, you know, and, in the deep south, throughout the south, they had the separate water fountains and everything. When Hoffheinz was mayor, he just removed the signs and removed the signs for the restrooms and that sort of thing. And people didn't really notice for the most part, but Houston was sort of integrated a little bit faster than some of the other They were cities. on the vanguard for the south. Now, yeah. some would argue Houston's the southwest anyway. Yeah. But another part of that is they made sure that the building was built. Yeah. Um, you know, mm -hmm. with with fully integrated facilities, so it yeah. was uh, it was a landmark in that way too. How but there, were the black players on that original roster of the Astros? You know, I'd have to go check. I've never so thought of Joe. Joe was the first. Jimmy Wynn, yeah, yeah, you're Joe right. Jimmy Wynn would have been one. Yeah, yeah. But uh, there was a there was an interesting story about uh, you know during all that integration with Hop Heights and you know sort of working through the civil rights movement. Some some woman who was a rather affluent woman you know, was talking about her grandchildren and, and her concern because they had integrated the libraries. And, si and she said something, she said something ridiculous, like, I don't know what they would catch, you know, talking about her grandchildren. I don't know what they would catch if they were hanging out with those other children. And, and he just paused and said, maybe tolerance. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was a great story. <laughs> Houston always struck me as being a, being a really racially calm city. Yeah. You had about a third Latino, you had about a third black, now it's one of the most diverse cities. It really is. Yeah, yeah. And what can you guys speak? How how was the attendance? I guess early on, and how was the fan experience? We talked about the press response. How did the average fan feel? Yeah, early the attendance was good, but it did start tailing off. I mean, you know, you think about it. One of the problems with the Astrodome, at least for baseball, is it was big enough that you could get a ticket on game day and go in. Like, you think about why Yank the new Yankee Stadium's smaller and why Fenway Park has the, among the highest ticket prices of all teams. Part of the reason is 
these owners do not want you to be able to walk up on game day and just buy a ticket in a convenient and easy way because because then yeah who would want that no no but it, it's an economic thing but it's about exclusivity the, too well the bottom line is if you, if you have to if you have to make an appointment and buy the ticket in advance to get in the door you're going to pay more for it so so in a sense the astrodome by being big enough to be able to walk up on game day kind of shot itself in the foot if you made it a little bit smaller but then the football team would elect sooner so right so and they, and they weren't fielding winning teams either so after a while the tyranny of the new wears off you yeah. know and that that happens sure. uh, in every marketplace yeah. to a certain extent yeah and and there wasn't a baseball culture to rest their laurels on so they needed to start winning sooner yeah. But after a while, they do, they do see that lag. There's and, no doubt about it. And you think about you know, the Mets winning in 69 with their outstanding pitching, and then the Astros not, not doing much until... The, the attendance, you know, 12,000, 14,000. Even in 86, up until the last couple of months, there was nobody there. It was, and yeah. quiet, you could hear a pin drop. Like people were and they would church. do interesting things they, to they try to track people. They would make excuses people. that, oh, it's a school night. Yeah. I had never heard that before. That yeah. People didn't go to the ballgame because it was a school well, night. Well, you remember Mike Scott's no-hitter was not sold out. That was the day they clinched the pennant <laughs> yeah. and got a no-hitter in the bargain. And, you know, there were what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 14,000 seats available. But, but they would do interesting things, like if someone hit a home run when a light was on in a, you know, a certain part of the, uh, the ballpark, you'd all get a free beer. It was, you know, the foamer thing. And so they would do these wacky things to attract people, but in some instances, it didn't matter. The football culture yeah. used was unbelievable. And yeah. still and is. And there were cowboy fans. They were not oil fans. They Did they have people dressed like, like astronauts? Absolutely, yeah. The grounds crew. In fact, that was a hot fights thing. And, you know, I just know they had the ground crew dressed as astronauts, and they had the space ets who were the... Uh, the ushers, you know, it was it was funny, but they had all these sort of space age looking costumes, and all of the staff, the concessionaires, and everything else, had costumes that were theme appropriate, uh, and it was interesting. But like when you think about how in today's games they sort of have like the, you know, like you know the the Dallas cheerleaders and you know the different uniforms and stuff. You know, Hoffheit's dedication to, you know, making it an entertainment venue and having the uniforms for, for the workers was kind of part of... But remember, this is when the Flintstones were on primetime TV. That's right. So the modern Stone Age family. Simpsons, <laughs> family guy. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did the scoreboard also make noises? Oh, yeah. The scoreboard was unbelievable. The home run spectacular. And that was the casualty of the renovation that... Narendra Gosain, um, he had to who's the keeper that. of the dome now, yeah. uh, succeeding my grandfather, he, uh, he had to dismantle it to make way for center field so they could bring the seats across yeah. uh, to appease. Yeah, and it broke his heart, but at the same time, I mean, digital technology was, was gradually kept catching up, and you had you know, Mitsubishi and Sony. It was and, pretty dated, in yeah. truth, but people loved it, and, yeah. and they set it off one more time during the renovation. Then later, I believe somebody set it off in a field. They, somebody purchased it or something there's a lot of folklore. <laughs> did did Hoffheinz uh, bring in Speck Richardson or was that after Hoffheinz left because Richardson traded Joe Morgan you know and, but, but when did he come in? I mean how, how long? Yeah I'm not sure I hate to say it I, I don't want to I don't want to mention it. 
Yeah. Well, when did Hawthorne sleep? Did, did he die in office? He had state? a he had a stroke in the seventies, and then yeah, and then and then he honestly was a shell of his former self through those years, and occasionally he'd come back, but he he wasn't nearly what he used to be, and and from that point onward, he tried to maneuver things, and he was still he still had the brilliance, but he physically couldn't do the things he used to do, and. With interest rates, as, as many of you know who sur you know, survived the 70s, you know, the bottom line is interest rates were through the roof and just trying to manage all of the financial things that he was doing. They went in receivership and yeah, cause he had off a, he board had a, foundation. He had Astro World, he, he owned Ringling Brothers Circus, he owned a lot of shares in Mattel. And quite frankly, a lot of that imploded on him, and he he just he just couldn't keep the empire alive, and ended up having to, you know, divest. Yeah. yeah. And did his son was his, did his son was politician. Yeah, he became mayor, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he has Fred another. Arfines. Yeah, he had another son who, uh, you know, was a was a professor at Harvard. You know, we talk about. I, I think it's worth noting. We talk about Hoffines, and and he. He liked being called a huckster. He, you know, he liked that <laughs> reputation. But um, when Bob and I were in Houston, uh, <laughs> we were we were talking to my uh, to my my aunt Molly, who's his youngest daughter, Ken Zimmerman's youngest daughter, and we were we were reading so much and learning so much about this kind of and we were just this larger than life table. figure, yeah, that yeah. that, that Hoffines was. And I finally said, Did Granddad like Hoffines? <laughs> Because my grandfather was this no-nonsense mathematician, engineering guy, right? <laughs> That's who he was. He kept yeah. a pencil around in case he needed to, you know, start <laughs> drafting something. You know, we'd be at the beach and he'd be like, "Let's go." You know, yeah. <laughs> but so, but we asked, and she said, "No, she he loved him." And the reason why he liked him is, and this I think explains the political will that Hoffines had. He played this huckster showman, but he really would cut to the chase. And what what my grandfather liked about him, and I think a lot of people. Was he? He was no nonsense. He would do what he said, and he would do it to the nth degree. And it might drive you crazy, but he, he would do what he said. How unique was it that he lived in this cave? I mean, the only thing I can think of comparable is the natural, which was written centuries before. Right. Yeah. I don't know any other ball team that. Had that <laughs> you know, if, I, this is probably not fair to Hoffines, but I would. Remember when I first made this discovery that this guy had an apartment in this stadium where I would go, because we had season tickets, because my grandfather, we go to lots of baseball games, we go to the football games, and it was just something we did, because, you know, we had this kind of access. And I remember talking to my dad about this, and, you know, being weirded out that this guy lived in that weird-looking multi-story thing <laughs> where other seats should be, you know, off in the corner. And it was about the time... Uh, just a little bit later when the Howard Hughes stories broke, when we discovered that Hughes was, what, living in, you know, it, you know, watching Ice Station Zebra over and over again and saving his urine and all of this kind of thing. Uh, and then they, and of course, he went through Houston right on his last mad dash to try to be resuscitated. Um, and I started to put this image in my mind that Hawthorne's is kind of like Hughes, right? He's kind of stuck out here. Yeah. And maybe he was with his failing health by then. Yeah. I don't but he did live there. He loved Houston. He really <laughs> did. He, he was, he was from, originally from Beaumont, but then the oil industry, after, after the spindle top thing, moved to Houston and made that their center. And, that, and you know, he moved at a very young age to Houston. I mean, one of the things that's weird about Hoffines, too, is his, 
I think it was a month or two after he had, he had graduated from high school, his father was killed in a tragic car accident. He was he did de delivered laundry and that sort of thing. So he was the primary breadwinner for his entire family as a youngster, which makes some of his achievements all the more amazing. Yeah. Well, I hate to say it, the trop is one that it's it's one of the worst baseball. <laughs> it really is. But at the same time, uh, I you know I think when you think about baseball and you think about you know the green grass and the fresh cut lawn and all that sort of thing, most people who are baseball purists really don't look at you know the indoor artificial as a good thing. I think. Football is a little bit of a different animal where, you know, football gets more associated with technology. And when you even look at the sidelines, you see, you know, those, those Microsoft logos right. and, 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 you know, those, those pads, you know, that, you know, the Surface Pros and all that sort of thing. Football prides itself on being very technology driven. Baseball sort of prides itself on being very pastoral. So in a, in a weird way, I, I'm not sure, I think, Domes and baseball kind of don't mix if you're a purist. I think a lot of people, though, are sort of the fair weather fans who like mall parks and don't necessarily care. But I, I, I have to say, I, I think that last part's certainly true to some extent. I mean, you see this all the time where yeah. folks just go because it's something they do. Yeah. Right? Um, but there was a certain pragmatics that made a lot of sense for the Astrodome. Yeah. It wasn't going to happen in that day and age in Houston without that facility because. Yeah. It was miserable in the summer. Yeah, it, it, you know. Well, and it, it was miserable. The rain was terrible. The mosquitoes were the giant. The mosquitoes were awful. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it made all the sense in the world. Yeah. And, and that's how you were going to export. Yeah. Baseball to that area, and it, you know, it yeah. ultimately it, works very, very well. And I mean, I, you know, Sandy Koufax is an example. Commenting on Houston's mosquitoes before the Astrodome was built, said some some of them are twin engine jobs. You know? yeah. <laughs> so the mosquitoes yeah, so it, were pretty. There was big. a certain pragmatic value to having it, right? I mean, you needed it, and and I I know I valued it as a kid. You know, it made it possible. Um, but we would have been rained out all the time. Yeah, because yeah, it does rain a lot in Houston. Sure, yeah. especially. They did have Monrena, right? Yeah, that was right the, against the against the Pirates. Yeah. yeah, and but the irony, it would have happened, but the Umps couldn't get there. They would have held the game. Both teams were there. Yeah, uh, but it, yeah, it was raining yeah. down because of flooding. Well, what's funny is they they canceled it pretty quickly, but I think there were twenty something fans who got to the ballpark, so they gave them a free they gave them a free meal and let them hang out, and then the team actually the two, let them ride the carousel the, maybe. The, the, yeah, the two teams actually. Ate a meal right on the ballpark. They grabbed the tables, put put them on the ballpark, and they all ate together. And it was sort of a weird moment, in that you know, they they broke bread together and sort of had a good moment, you know, on a a weird rain a rain in I guess you'd call it, <laughs> because you know, the the dome, there was no rain coming in, but the you know they they canceled well, a little the game. Here and there. <laughs> Did you run across any Yogi Berraisms about the Astrodome? You know, I, I got I did get to speak with him uh, on a number of occasions, and um, you know, I think he was he was a pragmatist, right? It was yeah. the job. He loved the job. Yeah. Yeah. He was having a ball. The last time I saw him, it was um, the Astros had a uh, an event. I think they still do. They call it the Astros Caravan, right? It's the yeah. pre-spring training <laughs> jaunt across yeah. the state. 
And the last time I saw him, uh, he had some some martinis and he was up at the bar waiting for the presser to start. And, yeah. You know, he was knocking them back and laughing. But I, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I will say Casey Stengel, though, was excited about the, the dome. The, the one thing that he really got a kick out of is when Lindsey Nelson actually did broadcast from the from the gondola. I don't know if you remember that, and you probably read about that in the book, but he, you know, he broadcast from the gondola, and Lindsey Nelson's great. I, I, you know, I work with him very briefly, but I, I just, <laughs> he, you know, Stengel was, was thrilled to be able to say, you know, he asked, well, what happens if a baseball hits, hits him? And, and, you know, he's, and the umpire said, well, then it's a ground rule double. And, <laughs> and, 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 and you know, so he, he said, so my man up there is a ground rule. And he was really <laughs> excited about the fact that Lindsey Nelson was a ground rule. And Lindsey Nelson, when he was up there, he was, t he basically, you know, usually when you do play by play, you keep the score meticulously. He didn't because he was afraid that if he had dropped the pen, it would be a projectile that would kill someone. So he didn't keep score and he just did the broadcast. And it was the only time they did it, you know, yeah. because. The, it essentially didn't really work. What about Rusty Stop? He was at first hero, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he was. And Rusty, uh, I, I think Rusty liked the Astrodome. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he was kind of an easygoing guy. The funny thing about Rusty is he, he was, he was when he, he got signed, it was actually Kirksey who did the signing. That's right. Do you remember? Because what happened is George Kirksey, and Kirksey shouldn't have, he, he honestly shouldn't have been there, it should have been, you know, Richards who, who did the signing, but he got hung up in an airport for some reason. Kirksey did it, Kirksey actually then signed his brother and his father to contracts, and, and, and Richards was like, you know, why, what are you, <laughs> what are you doing here? You know? But he was so enthusiastic about getting someone who, you know, and I think Rusty was considered someone with a lot of potential, well, his brother really didn't amount to he as was, much. He was the first star, but he was intentionally their first star, too. Yeah. There was a lot of intentionality about, about his signing. And there's a story that uh, my mother used to love to tell. That, you know, when the, when, the, when the dome opened, they had society events built around this thing just for weeks on end. It was the place to go in Houston. You know, people are dressed up in coats and tails. And, yeah. and my father, who is not a big baseball fan, would go to all of these things because, you know, his father-in-law is, is so intimately involved, and, and he, he just told me how, for him, how boring it was to go night after night to these kind of things. But one of them was uh, one of the nights when Rusty got his first big hit. It was, uh, it was either a homer or, you know, a big game-winning double or something, and, you know, we could all go research that later, but it was quite early on, and my grandmother uh, had had a lot of that dome beer. <laughs> uh, and uh, my mother was having to sort of kindly escort her, you know, out of the boxes so she could, I don't know, get some air or something. Um, you know, it's Texas, so there was a lot of air out there. Um, and so anyway, she was escorting her out there, and, and they, you know, she, they announced Rusty Staub, and she said, oh, he'll never amount to anything. <laughs> my mother loved it, because then he belted that winner. <laughs> so well, much for her prognostication. Um, yeah. On, on Rusty's, uh, he's going to have the final word. Oh, good. Due to, due to the time factor, uh, the book, again, it's extremely well-researched and interesting. The name, The Eighth Wonder of the World, published by University of Nebraska Press, written by Robert Trumpor and Kenneth Womack.
Bob and Ken, thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, thank you for having us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you.